0: God with us, move through us, and despite of us, that we may be people of expectation and hope today in the midst of a chaotic world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're starting a new worship series today called God in Our Chaos, and I think it is a really interesting approach to Advent. Advent is this season of waiting. It's the season where we begin to spiritually prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ for the first time. Because we have to think of it as if it's the first time because, hey, you're only born once, right? And yet, it's this church cyclical thing that happens every year in which Christ is born in us again. That's what we say, be born in us again. Have you ever heard those words in in the hymn before? When I was preparing for this, um, this season, I started to sort of realize that... We go through the characters and we tell about the different people and we gradually create our stories a little, you know, we create this little manger scene and basically we recreate the same story over and over again and we focus on the middle part of the story, on that no crying he made part of the story. But really, the Christmas story is one that is set in complete chaos, this story is nuts. Normally, though, we consider chaos to be an undesirable thing. Christmas is already chaotic enough, right? Why do we have to talk about chaos here on Sunday morning, too? We want our Christmas story to be the gentle, meek, manger, no-crying-he-made kind of Jesus because it's beautiful, and yet I would, I'm going to, to throw out there perhaps perhaps Christmas is made more beautiful when we look at it within the context of chaos. Christmas is about chaos. And I think ultimately that's really good news for us. And so we launch into this season together. We're going to spend some time digging into what is so chaotic about this season. So here's what I mean when I'm talking about the season being chaotic. The Christmas story in Matthew is told from the second half of chapter 1 through the first half of chapter 2 of Matthew. So today, I would like us to read the first half of chapter 1 and the second half of chapter 2, the pieces that bookend this long Christmas story. And it opens up with something we're not too keen on reading most of the time. It's the genealogy of Jesus. I'm not going to go over every character in this genealogy, but I want... I want to give you a hint at the chaos of the family out of which Jesus comes. So here's what it says. This is an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. That means the anointed one, the promised one, the one God is sending to save the world. The son of David, who was the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, now Tamar. What you're going to find about this genealogy is when you're reading a genealogy and they have to specify by whom the child is had, (laughs) it's an interesting moment in the genealogy. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law, and I'm not going to go over the whole story. Google it. You should. Um, but long story short, uh, she dresses up like a woman of the night and seduces the adulterous Judah into having a child. But that's okay. That's, that's Jesus's genealogy. Our Lord. And so it goes on. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Now Rahab, Rahab, also a working girl, she helped save a whole lot of people, but she saved them by living out her profession. Google it later. I promise it's, it's a good time. It's a good time. And Boaz is the father of Obed. Let's not even talk about this particular group of people out of which this part of the family tree comes. This is the part of the story you don't put on the Christmas card. This, it's a bit incestuous, but that's okay. It's Jesus' story. And Boaz, the father of Obed. Oops, back. And Boaz, the father of Obed and Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. King David! (laughs) Now we're to a winner. This is a winner. King David was like the king of kings, right? The king of kings. When King David was in charge, Israel, the nation over which he was ruling, was never more powerful, was never larger, was never richer, was never more faithful. King David, the king of kings. And David was the father of Solomon. Great. He had a son, and he was pretty cool too. He's the one responsible for building the temple by the wife of Uriah. And so now there's a problem because normally you have a child with your own wife, but in this case, he's had a child with another guy's wife. And I'll let you read the rest of that story as well. <laughs> Google it. But it would be good for you to know that Uriah was eventually killed. And so, mid genealogy for Jesus, our Lord. Not only adulterous, but also a murderer. This is not going well. Maybe it gets better. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, also a king in this line. And Ahaz, for his own self profit g- gives the kingdom of god gives the kingdom of israel away to the enemy and starts worshipping all kinds of other idols and ahaz the father of hezekiah and so on and so on and so on we're not going to talk about all of them until and jacob the father of joseph the husband of mary of whom jesus was born who is called the messiah This, this right here is the genealogy of Jesus. Like, this is his family. (laughs) If you think your family is weird, (laughs) that's all I'm saying. If you think your family is weird, welcome to the party. That's how this story starts. Now, we might have to go through each one, like we here today have to go through each one of these characters. That's because we don't grow up reading these people's past, this history for these people. We don't grow up, but if... I guarantee you that Matthew, while he, was, while he was writing this down, was like, I cannot even believe I have to write this right now. I mean, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> it would have been embarrassing to some degree for the savior of the world to have come from that particular lineage. The Christmas story set in the context of familial chaos and so that's the beginning of the story, and then you know, you know what comes after that. The angel comes to Mary and tells her she's going to have a baby, and she's traveling, and Joseph says, I'll still marry you, even though you've had a baby, and I don't know where that baby came from, and they find a manger at just the right time, and the cattle are lowing, and the baby is sleeping, and then the wise men come, which is a pretty big part of the story. Normally, you put the wise men right in the manger with everybody else the first day you set it out, Right? But that's not really how it would have happened. They, they, they eventually come, but they don't come right away. The wise men come looking for a king, a new king, a king who's been born. And where do you go looking for a king? A castle, a palace, right? A castle or a palace. And so first, before they ever end up in the manger, they go to knock on Herod's door, King Herod. And so they say, hey, dude, like Herod, we're here to meet your son. We've heard about this new king, this new prince. And Herod's like, I don't have a son, but I would love to pay him homage (laughs) because I cannot have this little baby threatening my power. And so Herod propositions these wise men to come be his messengers to tell him where this baby is. So the wise men don't just arrive on the scene with gifts in hand. They arrive on a mission to kill this baby. And there in that moment, they have their own conversion. And this happens When Herod realized that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And so he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger. According to the time he had heard this from the wise men. The Christmas story, second half of Matthew 1, first half of Matthew 2. These are the two bookends of this story. This crazy genealogical history that no one would believe is the lineage of Jesus and the murder of innocent children. If you can't kill one, let's just kill them all, Herod thinks. This is the Christmas story. Now, if that's not chaotic, I don't know what is. And it's easy when you get to the Christmas story to just kind of whitewash all of the chaos out, and that's fine. I mean, it tells a beautiful story. Why else would millions of people who don't come to church on a regular basis, January 1 through December twenty third, show up on December twenty fourth? Why else would they show up? Because the story, it's beautiful, right? But I think it's even more beautiful when we leave all the mess in. And here's why. The fact that our God, the God of the universe, the God full of purity, whose robe is the light and his canopy space, who exists in this other realm entirely, would choose to come and get dirty with us, I think speaks of the nature of the mission of God. God didn't look down. There's a couple of options that could happen, right? God didn't look down and see the chaos of our world empires dominating and kings flexing and people starving and widows lonely and people self-medicating and temples abusing power and families broken and war raging. God didn't just look down and say, well, isn't that just unfortunate? They're going to have to clean that up. Our God, through this thing called the incarnation, which is a very churchy word, chose to come and participate in it in order to redeem it. That's what we celebrate in Advent that's what we celebrate in Christmas. When we talk about the Incarnation, this is the word we're talking about here and we talk about the Incarnation which is a word that only means um, which means in carne carne means flesh that should sound familiar to you in fleshing something when we say this word that God chose to put God's self in flesh, this in fleshing, this incarnating, we say that Jesus was both divine and human at the same time. And then somehow, mysteriously, as God, in God's perfect divinity, chose to attach himself to our broken humanity, God was able to offer a little bit of perfection to us. That's what that means. A little bit of that wholeness to us too. God was able to take our chaos and redeem it. To redeem, which—so the, the word redeem, too, has, like, multiple meanings. The word redeem could mean to trade in or to swap out. It can mean to add value to something that doesn't already have value. It can mean, in a slavery sense, um, to actually buy back a slave and to liberate them. It can mean to take something that is ugly and to rearrange it, not to change it altogether, but rearrange it to make it beautiful— We believe that incarnation, when God chose to enflesh himself in the midst of our chaos, that God was able to do all these things in our world. Now, if the incarnation makes you mentally struggle, like you're not alone, (laughs) how could one be both fully divine and fully human? How can something be 100% one thing and also 100% another thing? People have been struggling with this for centuries. Back in the 300s AD, when they were struggling with this word, struggling with what it means to say that God is all divine and all human, this guy came on the scene. His name is Apollinarius, and Apollinarius supposed this. Well, maybe God sort of created a human being— And then transplanted divinity, poured divinity into that body. And the word that Apollinarius would have used would have been like mind. Poured a mind into that body or this essence of being into that body. And so God sort of creates a vessel as a human and then sort of pours divinity into it. Just so you know, he's a heretic. (laughs) So that's not what we believe. (laughs) But there's this other guy who is responding to him. This guy is Gregory of Nazianzus, and he says this. He says, as a response to Apollinarius, that which God did not assume, he did not redeem. That which God did not assume, that means to take on, to become enfleshed in, God did not redeem. So Apollinarius, if what you're saying is God created a body and then just kind of poured a brain into it that happened to be divine, but that God didn't fully take on that body. What God has not assumed, God has not redeemed. So when we say that God is both fully human and fully divine, we recognize as a church that that is nonsensical. It makes no sense. And in some ways, it's our way of naming that God chose to become In every sense, fully, honestly, genuinely human, taking on, assuming our human chaos, our brokenness, so that those places in our lives could be redeemed. Just think about that. Just think about that for a second. Think about what it means if Christmas is not chaotic. It's almost of no use to us. If God were to choose, let's say, to stay in a realm far away, hovering above, and we're just kind of that stew and tor- turmoil down below, and, or if God waited until we got all of our stuff under control, and we were all fixed and ready to go, and now God could show up, what's the point? In my mind, the true beauty of Christmas is, is in the fact that God came, sort of took on our uncleanliness to make it clean, took on our brokenness to make it whole, that God took on our loneliness and isolation and fears and doubts in order that we might belong in a new way in this world. Those are the beautiful parts of the story. And so if Christmas is chaotic, and if that's actually good news for us, I believe that there's something of us that has to respond to that. It looks a little bit like this. We have people over our house all the time. And it's part of this routine for Chris and I, as people come over our house, to clean up right before everyone comes over, right? <laughs> Who else does this? Self-confession, yes, thank you. It's good for the soul. And there are, lots of, there, are, there are lots of reasons why we do this. I mean, we can give this long list of reasons But really, really, if we were to, like, boil it all down to why we have this, like, clean up real fast ritual before everybody comes over, if we were to boil all this down, it's because we want everyone to think we've got our lives together, right? Like, that is the real reason. And there's nothing wrong with this if you're... If you're going to have guests over to your house as a part of being in civilized society to like clean up and make it present, I mean, that's, that, there's nothing wrong with this. But, but when you clean up, what it means is that guests have a very particular place now to engage you in your home. They must be confined to the living room and to the kitchen and to that one bathroom on the main floor and maybe the basement if you hadn't, don't have any boxes down there. And God forbid we would, um, if they'd ever see our bedroom or all the other three bathrooms in the house, God forbid, and we, we sort of create this place where we can sort of say our life is together. We're going to let you come into our life. We're going to be hospitable to you, but we're just not going to let you fully into our life. And so when family comes over, it's a little bit different, right? You, family come over, well, maybe for some of you. I, I don't know. I don't know if the pressures of the in-laws, I don't know. But uh, when family comes over, sometimes or most of the time, it's a little bit different. You let people into places in your home that, that you probably wouldn't otherwise. Uh, and so this is the kind of reality that we live in. And a few weeks back, I was visiting a friend in Durham. Uh, it's a clergy friend, and I was coming to stay with them. And he was my like clergy mentor while I was in seminary and I'm so excited to visit and I pull up my car and I get my suitcase out and I'm walking up to the door and little did I know sheer chaos was happening inside the house at that moment. Um, When I was living in Durham, I just kind of walked into their house. That was just the way our relationship was. Um, That's the way they preferred it. They're the kind of people who just leave their doors unlocked all the time. And so within a matter of three minutes, right before I walked up to the door, their middle son, who was about five, fell and busted his head open. And so everybody's having this conversation of whether or not they should take him to get stitches. Molly, the mom, is in the middle of pumping for their six-month-old, and so the oldest son is holding a gauze to the to the middle son's head, uh, and uh, the father is in the bathroom giving his six-month-old a bath. And in the middle of the bath, the six-month-old poops in the tub, and now and now the water's unclean, and so he's trying to take the six-month-old out of the tub. And finally, the eight-year-old can't hold the cloth on the head anymore because he really has to pee. And he keeps telling mom he has to pee really, really bad. So finally, he lets go. And he goes to the bathroom to pee. And Molly is trying to finish up with the pumping so she can help the five-year-old. And it's just this, like, like, whirlwind. And right about this time, I walk in. And Molly is completely shirtless. <laughs> and the five-year-old is screaming and asking if he's going to die. And Greg's yelling at the eight-year-old for not putting the seat down. And something about, you know, maybe uh, there was pee left in the toilet, and it's just so chaotic, and, of course, there's still the baby, and there's still the poop in the tub. And so I walk in, I don't know all of this is going on, and I say to them, hey, I'm going to get out of your hair. Can I use your restroom? (laughs) And he said, well, here's the deal. (laughs) The seat's up, there's pee in the toilet, there's poop in the tub, but have on at it. (laughs) A few days later, after I had kind of driven home and I had spent time with them, a few days later, I'm, I'm thinking fondly on this visit, and I just started to realize how much that meant to me. I knew our, our relationship had hit this kind of new level, this new family level, and it just, it just kind of sunk in. Man, they shared their life at a whole new level with me. And so I just sent them a text. Thank you. Thank you. I can tell we're no longer friends, we're family now. And there's there's some real truth in that, right? Because you don't just let someone into your bathroom when there's poop in the tub. <laughs> or whatever that metaphorical poop in the tub is, right? You whitewash that away. And I think that's what we do a lot of the times with the Christmas story. Six pounds, four ounces, in a golden diaper, baby Jesus. Jesus, you can have all the best parts of my life. Come and sit in my front room. Come and sit in my parlor and eat off my sweet little appetizer plates and enjoy my sweet tea. But for the love of everything holy, stay out of my bathroom. (laughs) The fact that the Christmas story is chaotic, I believe, means that we can let Jesus into the deepest, darkest, kind of chaotic spaces of our life as well, and it's okay. Jesus didn't come to this earth in spite of those things. He came because of those things. He didn't choose to remain at a distance like, once you clean it all up, that'd be fantastic and I'll be over right away. But um, he came to redeem it so so that ugly things can become beautiful, so that something worth less can be worth more, so that something bound up and tied down could be set free. That's us. I think this also changes the way we are in mission and ministry as well, though. Back when I was in Durham, I participated for a few a few times with something called the Religious Coalition for a Nonviolent Durham. This is an organization of people who respond specifically to gun violence in Durham, and and this is what they do. <laughs> Whenever there's a victim of gun violence, they are on the phone with the, the police officers. They have a great relationship with the police officers. And, um, and the police you know, block off the scene, and, um, and they get the crime scene somewhat cleared up. And the folks who are a part of the religious coalition for a nonviolent Durham, they come, and they have a prayer vigil right in the spot where the victim was shot. And if it hasn't been raining it looks like a crime scene. I went out a couple of times, like two two or three times, and, and they go and they pray there. And the woman who's in charge of this, this is what she said. She said, growing up, I was taught that when bad things happen in bad neighborhoods, that it wasn't my problem. Not my neighborhood. They're not my neighbors. And then I realized that as a follower of Jesus, I am not allowed to think that anymore. The ones who fired the shots and the ones who died are not just my neighbors, they're my brothers and sisters. I had to do something about it, she said. That which God has not assumed, God has not redeemed. I I know that these people go and they assume they assume this crime scene and they pray for redemption of that place and the people who perpetrated the crimes and the people who died in the name of Jesus. And that is a powerful thing. There is power in saying this person I don't know is not just my neighbor, they're my family. This is a place of chaos and I, I'm not going to stay away from this. I'm not going to stay away from this. In our lives and in our world, we are well attuned to the chaos, well attuned to the chaos. And we have to be able to name that. Those chaotic places in our own hearts, those chaotic places in our families, those chaotic places in our world we cannot look away. And when we look at our world, we many times ask this question, God, where are you? Where where is God here? And my answer for you would be God is right here. I mean, it's a plain answer, but even more strongly than God is right here would be If you find chaos, that's where God is.